You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Well, welcome to Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK. You can find us on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. In this episode, the guest we have, a returning guest, is Graham Gould. Graham is, if you remember, has been with us a couple of times, uh, a few times on Future Quake Southern Hemisphere and also here on Like Flint Radio. Uh, and I think it was show 10, but Graham will probably confirm that in one second. So anyway, let's get Graham on. G'day, Graham. How are you, mate? G'day, Garth. I'm doing well. It's a beautiful Lord's Day today, as people often call it. And I think last show, it was show 10. Great. You, you checked it out earlier, mm. <laughs> so I trust that. Um, but um, yeah, we had a look at holiness and stuff. Yes. And um, I think as part of the show, we mentioned that we were on our way to getting a house. Well, we have that house now and we've moved in. Um, all the internet is still at the caravan. So I'm recording this from the caravan. We're waiting on internet being set up there. So, you know, value people's prayers for us and appreciate the opportunity to be able to share um, our ministry and, and our needs um, with the broader community. It's great to have friends out there um, that care about us, as we know from the Future Quake group, um, that uh, many friends there. Excellent, that's true. Um, and obviously, we will all be praying for Margie. Um, listen, what are we going to be talking about today, Graham? It's a this is a follow-on from the last show, somewhat. Uh, well, in some ways, I think this will, will overlap a bit, but it's okay. not. I mean, this we're going to record this show as a as a standalone, right? Um, but there's going to be things that we skim over quite quickly because we've already looked in depth at holiness. Okay. And today we want to look in depth at uh, temptation, really. Okay. Um, the last show was holiness, sin, judgment, and justification were the sort of the theme, the the four topics that we touched on last show. Um, so I'm not going to dig into depth in holiness, but you do need to have that platform of of the righteousness of God to be able to stand um, the truths of, regarding temptation that and, and then how it ties in with sin as well, which we dug into quite um, well, I think, in the last show. So it probably would be useful for people to go back to that show if you want to get a more uh, um, in-depth idea about holiness and sin. So can we call this one um, Temptation in the Christian Life? Yeah, well, that was the title that popped into my head. Good. <laughs> yes. All right, so so start us off, because I, I, I've got an idea. Um, you just wanted to um, touch lightly on righteousness first. Is that right? Um, yeah, I think it's very important to establish a platform or a foundation, and the foundation should always be God. Whatever topic we talk about, we need to go back to, okay, how is God foundational yeah. for this topic? And I yes. think in relation to temptation, the idea of holiness, which we went into fairly well last show from Isaiah 6, or I want to emphasize more righteousness this time, which is essentially a synonym for holiness. But um, righteousness 
is of God. Um, he alone is right and perfect in every aspect. Um, and so temptation is a drawing away from the righteousness of God. And I, I pulled a couple of verses together that highlight the righteousness of God, such as Psalm 45 verse 7 says, God loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And Psalm 50 verse 6, the heavens declare God's righteousness. Um, and we see that in Romans 1, that people are without excuse. They know that there's a creator. They know that he is good. Not only that he is good in terms of holiness, but in terms of kindness as well, because he provides, um, plus he's powerful. Um, and what he does is perfect. Even though we see a sin-cursed world around us, um, you still see the glimpses of the perfection that God created this world in. And Romans 1 verses uh, 16 and 17 highlight that God's righteousness is revealed by the gospel or by the preaching of the gospel. Um, if you wanted to look up those verses, they're very, very uh, good verses to have um, either memorized or at least know the idea in them and where to find them. So this foundational idea of God is righteous, I think we need to establish um, as we go into this topic. The next thing that we need to look at then is this idea of sin mm. again. Mm. So last show we looked at holiness and sin is anything less than perfection. Anything less than moral perfection particularly is what we're looking at. So sin is not necessarily the worst evil. Sin is anything that is not the character of God. So any, any taint, any mar, even a shadow on the light that um, is God. And so that's what temptation seeks to draw us into. Temptation itself is not sin, but temptation is wanting to get us to agree with it, and so then we do sin. Um, and we looked at that fairly extensively last show, as I already mentioned, but the very earliest examples of sin um, that we find recorded in Scripture um, is Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. In the, in the third chapter of Scripture, God had said to Adam, I've put you in this Garden of Eden. Here's all these plants, and you can eat of all the fruit and the nuts and the seeds. Um, that was what God had told mankind originally uh, to be eating. And he said, but there's one tree right in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not allowed to eat of the fruit of that tree. Well, the devil comes along in the form of a serpent, and he tempts Eve and says, Oh, did God really say that? And Eve starts to have doubts, and she starts to, she starts to play his game. And he drags her in, and he drags her in, and he says, Oh, it'll be okay. It'll actually, it's going to be good for you. And she looks at it. And she sees that it looks good. She sees that it would be good to eat, or she thinks that it would. She doesn't know. And she also thinks that it will make her wise, because that's the promise that the devil's given her, that you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. This is, after all, it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She's going to learn something new, and she'll be like God, she thinks. And, and that's what the devil is tempting her to. 
and she falls into his trap. And she's deceived, the Bible tells us later on. She's deceived and she believes him. She falls for the lie. And we're going to dig into this a little bit more, comparing it a few other scriptures and, and pull the verse apart a bit more. Um, but I just want to give us this overview, first of all. And the next thing that Scripture says is that she gives it to Adam with her. Now, the idea that you can get from that verse there is he was standing there just watching. And Scripture also tells us later on that he wasn't deceived. He knew what he was doing. But she'd already taken of the fruit. Now, maybe Adam was thinking, oh, well, she's taken of the fruit. She didn't fall down dead straight away. So God must have lied to us. That could have been one of the thoughts that went through his head, or maybe he just thought, oh, well, I'll join her. I don't want to be separated from my wife. You know, I love her. Of course, he didn't take the, the best option, <laughs> is to not partake of the fruit and to um, offer himself, as Jesus did, offer himself in her place. But <laughs> that's, that's probably a separate topic. But here we see right up front, and this would have been very early on, I believe, because God had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and they conceived a child after this. So I think it's highly likely, if you consider that these are perfect human beings, <laughs> it's highly likely that um, this was quite early on. This was probably within days, I would think, of them having been created. Perhaps in the second week of creation, they give in to temptation. One deceived and the other one willingly. Um, and so that's been passed on to all of mankind, Scripture tells us. Adam is our federal head. Um, and so all of us are born with this sin nature. When God said to them, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. He didn't mean physically. They didn't die physically the day that they ate thereof. And I know people interpret this verse in various ways, but I'm going to give you my interpretation, is that they died spiritually on that day. Because the, the way that the, the Hebrew is written is that in the day that you eat thereof, you will muth, which is the word die, muth, muth. It just repeats the word die twice. Now, some translate that as, in the day that you eat thereof, dying you will die. So it will start the process of death, which is true as well, but that's only looking at the physical. Um, and I prefer to see the, the spiritual. After all, God is a spirit. He's not a physical body. And when he says you will surely die, I think God was thinking mostly of the spiritual. Um, and 930 years later, I believe it was, Adam dies spirit physically. Well... Yeah, but that's not the point. The point is that he died spiritually that day. That's a much more serious thing than dying physically. Um, so that's what temptation does to us. If we give in to temptation, um, it leads to sin. And we're going to look at that in James 1. That sin then leads to death. And Romans 6.23 tells us this as well. The wages of sin is death. So this is one of the reasons we need to resist temptation. It cuts us off from fellowship with God. Um, it causes us to become sinners. It brings death into our lives and brings death on others as well. Imagine Adam sitting up in heaven today, where I believe that he probably is, looking down on the death that he has caused. 
And we can do the same thing. We bring death into our families. We bring death into our communities. We bring death into our world whenever we sin. It doesn't just affect us. We can't pretend that the sin that we uh, commit um, is, oh, well, that's just about me and that's, that's my decision. How do we resist temptation? Are we going to cover that later or can we ask it, discuss um, it? I, I hadn't planned to, actually, and it's a very good question. Mm. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's have a quick look at it now. Um, I think the first thing is the fear of God. Um, over and over again in Scripture, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if Eve had have truly wanted wisdom and knowledge, then she should have had a greater fear of God. She didn't have a fear of God. She had a disrespect of God. And she wasn't concerned that God would judge. She wasn't concerned about God's wrath at all until she sinned and then she wanted to hide from him. And same thing with Adam. He was even more cavalier. He knew what he was getting into, at least to, at least to a greater degree than Eve did because she was deceived and he wasn't, um, and still went headlong into it. And God puts the greater judgment on his head, um, partly because he was created first and so he is... He was considered to be responsible. God had put him in charge. And so, um, yeah, he's, he's the first Adam. And, of course, Jesus Christ has come along um, as the last Adam. Um, but the other thing that I would suggest as well is to um, develop a greater love for God, a greater understanding. And, that's, and that understanding of God starts with the fear of God. So fear, fear of God because God is holy. We talked about this a bit last show. God is holy, therefore he judges sin. That's, that's what fear of God is all about. It's not, I don't believe it is just a respect. I think people drag the fear of God down to a lower level to turn it into, oh, just a respect. Now, God's not just someone who needs to be respected. He does need to be feared. He is the judge of all mankind. People will go to hell because they've breached his holiness and righteousness and that should cause us to quake. That should cause us not just to respect God. That should cause us to be in fear and trembling, not for our own souls necessarily, but certainly for the souls of those who are headed in that direction. And we should hate sin as God does. Um, and I think respect is just not, not a good enough term. I think fear is a good term uh, for it. But we've got to understand that it's not fear in terms of, you know, being scared of a spider or scared of death. It's it is a fear that equates to respect, but it is a higher level of respect than the way we normally talk about it. But yes, I think also developing a love of God, and one of the ways to do that is to recognize that Jesus died in our place. All of the sins of the whole world were poured on him, and God loved us so very, very much, as John 3.16 tells us. God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son into the world, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The, the love of God is infinite, it is great, it, it is enormous, and it is eternal. And the, the more that we understand that and develop um, that a connection within ourselves to the love of God, First John tells us we love him because he first loved us. And so I think those are two of the things that would help us resist temptation. A third one would be to realize that temptation doesn't offer anything. And as we go through, we'll see this. Temptation is a, uh, a glittering package of fetid, rotten garbage. Um, so it's got 
nice, pretty packaging on the outside, and you can't smell the stink until you open it. Um, but that's all that's inside, and you may not see it immediately once you get the gift, but it only brings death, destruction, and rottenness. Putrid, um, it's no good for you. Temptation um, will only ever appeal um, superficially. I think that would help as well. And also, I know we're going to touch on the flesh later, but also, um, you know, walking by the spirit and, and, and not after the flesh. And I think that's a good point, which brings into my mind that this is not a game. This is a war. And, and this is a war to the death. It's, it's death to either the flesh or the spirit. And if you play, if you, you know, try to straddle the fence and, and, and play in the middle, you're going to get hit from both sides. You're not going to find any pleasure or relief by um, playing games with the other side. The, the flesh needs to be put to death, Romans 6, tell, well, 6 actually tells us to consider it dead and buried. Um, Corinthians tells us to die daily. Uh, Paul says, I die daily. Um, but in a sense, that's already occurred. It occurred when we trusted Jesus Christ. It occurs through his death on the cross. Because we've trusted him, our flesh is crucified with him for those of us that have trusted him. Um, but we need to daily, at least, at least daily, consider that flesh dead and buried, that it has no power, it has no authority, it has no place in our life. And so, therefore, temptation can't get to us. Um, but I, I think we, we want to talk a bit about not just the flesh, which is our sin nature. That's the nature that we were born into this world with, and it can only ever do wrong. Now, you may say to me, that's not true. Lots of people who aren't Christians can do good. Well, that's because you don't see good the way that God does. When I say good, I mean moral perfection, which is the way that God uses the word good. Far too often in our world, we have this idea that goodness is helping an old lady across the street, for example. Well, it may or may not be. You may do that, but why are you doing it? And does it glorify God to do it? Oh, of course it does. Not necessarily. It, it can't glorify God within your own heart if you are doing it for your own selfish reasons. Right, So we must see good as the moral perfection of giving glory to God because he is moral perfection. And so anything less than that, anything that has even the taint of selfishness or pride or anything else apart from holiness, that's not good. That's a humanistic view of what goodness is. Mm. Um, so that's the sin nature that we were born with. And as Christians, we can still choose to follow that sin nature. Um, but as Christians, we've been given a new spirit. And, and I believe, from my understanding of Scripture, the new spirit that's been given to us can only do good. It cannot sin. Whereas the sin nature can only sin. It cannot do good by the definition of moral perfection. But as Christians, we have both as battling within us and as i said we need to consider that sin nature dead and buried but we have two other enemies the flesh or the sin nature the old man um or the greek word for it is sarx which we're going to dig into a little bit in a second that's our internal traitor but we also have two external enemies one is the devil 
who is the head of the spiritual forces um, cast out of heaven because of the rebellion against God, but who are in war against God. Um, so when we see the devil, we're probably speaking metaphorically of all of his forces, not just the devil himself, but speaking of him as their corporate head. That's right. Um, and then it's also the world. And the world um, comes from the word cosmos, um, but it, it can mean a few different things. It can actually have the idea of time. It can mean this globe. It can mean the people of this world, which is the way that it's used in John 3.16, God's world, meaning the people of the world. But I'll look um, shortly at 1 John, where it talks about the world, and here it means the system of the world or the spirit of the world. And the way I understand the world in, in this meaning or this usage is all of the flesh natures of all of the people of the world who are in submission to their father, the devil. Let me have a, um, just cut in here and let me have an examination sure. of these um, uh, three enemies, as you've put it. Um, so yep. you've mentioned the fle flesh, so we know that comes from the Greek word sarx. Um, and we know that um, there are a number of semantic meanings of any word. Um, so we've got to be able to read the Bible in context so we can find the correct interpretation for whatever... Uh, verse we're talking about or whatever uh, semantic meaning we're talking about right now because you and I have discussed this I know exactly what you're talking about here with the flesh so we're not just talking about the physical body alone but we're talking about the entity that's capable of actions and expressions um, for example um, Paul says that nothing good lives in the flesh so by that I I can say that, well, we know we're talking about more than our innards, and I'm not being crude there. I mean, you know, we're not just talking about our inward parts. Um, so it's more than that. Now, Romans 7.25 says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. So you see that it's, more than just the physical body. Another example, Graham, is Romans 8, 3. And I know you'll know this one. I think we're going to Romans 8. I'm not quite sure, but anyway. Um, Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Um, and one final one for our flesh or sarks. Actually, I want to do two. I want to do two. Um, Philippians three three says we're not we're warned not to put confidence in the flesh, and so um, uh, you know I take that to to mean both. Actually, not to put too much confidence into your physical body. That's for sure. But in that fleshly nature, that thing that's more than just your physical body, don't put your trust in that. And John 8, 15, I'm not sure if you gave me this one, Graham, but um, uh, where, where Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh, okay? So here that flesh is the flesh or the external things, right? So the word used here is sarks again. But in context, you could um, rightfully say, you judge according to external things. Um, so that way you see my point about the flesh is more than our physical bodies. 
So to read that, yeah. I'll just read the whole verse and then I'll let you comment on it. It's John eight fifteen. You judge according to the flesh, and I am not judging anyone. Just so that you know, you could see what that actually said. But it it is talking about more than the flesh. You know, our physical bodies, external things. But yeah, go on, comment, Graham. Yeah, it's a good point that you raise because mm. I have jumped ahead to that specific meaning of the word yeah, yeah, I knew, flesh that's why. that refers to yeah. our internal traitor. Yes. Um, but yes, literally the word sarks means the meat on our bones. Yes. Um, so In when the Bible sense, talks yes. about flesh and blood, that's right. it's talking about human beings who are made of that's you right. know, the, the meat plus the blood. That's right. Um, and of course there's bones deeper beneath. But, um, and so... You judge according to the flesh. I would interpret that as meaning you judge according to the physical. Um, yeah, would be the yeah. way that I would see yeah. that verse, which is similar yeah. to what you're saying. Yeah. So yes, that that word flesh, or which is translated from the word sarks, can have numerous different meanings, that's and, right. and literally, I'm... it's talking about the physical. But that's as right. you've rightly pointed out, there's a number of verses that it can't possibly be talking it, about it, the meat on our it, bones. It doesn't mean just that. Um, it, it has to mean more than that sometimes. That's right, yes. and I know that's what you're getting at here, which is and, why... And I that's where to... we've already jumped to, but yes, it's a good point to make, is that as you're reading Scripture, you need to understand it the way that the people that it was written to would have understand it, um, and sometimes it can be a little hard to decipher, but there's numerous helps out there. And context um, is everything, Graham, as you know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen. Um, so let me continue here. Um, the next enemy, because these aren't necessarily in order, but the next enemy you mentioned is the cosmos, the world. And again, you know, a literal interpretation could mean this rock that we're all sitting on, but that's not what we are talking about tonight. Um, and a couple of examples from Scripture will be um, uh, 1 John 2.15. There would be a number of semantic ways we could interpret the world but in context and the way that we're using this here is not the planet we live on but the things of the world which are hostile and in opposition to god so to compare with other scriptures where this is relevant you can look at john twelve thirty one, john fourteen thirty, and um one of your favorites graham james one twenty seven, where we are told to keep ourselves untainted from the world so obviously we're not talking mm. about the physical rock um mm. 1 Corinthians 2.12 Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So I'm, I'm demonstrating here that we're not talking about the planet. One more, another of your favorites too, Graham. James, we're going to, I've hit James, I'm going to hit Galatians for you, mate. Galatians <laughs> 6.14 But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is another example of um, we're not talking about the literal planet. Um, now, bear in mind that um, this world that we're talking about, we're told in the Bible that we're going to have trouble in this world. But in Jesus, we have peace. And, and we also know that he's overcome this world. Um and also, um, this world is passing. Th this whole system of things that we're currently living in, and, and it's a good way to look at it. You could just say, okay, this worldly system, it's passing away and it's soon going to be gone. And um, 1 John 2.17 tells us, um, whoever does the will of God will remain forever. Like this world is passing, but whoever does the will of God 
will remain forever. Do you think that's a fair uh, rundown on the world we are talking about, this system that you're going to be discussing, Graham? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so world can have that meaning of this rock that we're on. Yep. World can have the meaning of the people of the world. Yep. John 3.16, God loved all of them. That's right, Enough did, to yes. send his son. Um, yeah, the world that we're going to be talking about in this show is the world which is the system that follows Satan and seeks to take glory away from God. And is hostile and in, in, in opposition to God. Or everything that's in opposition to God. And I think... When we look at this idea of temptation, mm. that's the main thing we need to focus on is the temptation that comes from the world. Now, the flesh within wants to respond to that, but we need to stop it before it gets to that point that the flesh is starting to respond. And First John chapter 2, which you've already mentioned bits and pieces of it, yeah. we're going to dig into verses 15 and 16 particularly. Um, in verse 15, he says, stop loving the world. The, it, it's a command, and it's a, a command um, of once for all, make an end of loving the world. That's the tense of the Greek word as I understand it, and that's the translation I have open here. Some translations don't put it quite that way. They say, don't love the world. But it's actually more emphatic than that. It's not just a command. It's a once-for-all stop command. Um, so stop loving the world and the things that are in the world. So he makes it very clear what world he's talking about there. He's not talking about the people. He's not talking about the planet. Um, if anyone persists in loving the world, the Father's love is not in him. He makes this very black and white. This is a stark contrast. It's one or the other, as we've already mentioned in terms of flesh or spirit, um, you know, one's alive and the other one's dead. Here, it's between the world and the love of the Father. It's one or the other. Either love the world or you've got the Father's love. What, what For verse everything, is this, uh, verse 15 of First John 2. Right. So into verse 16, for everything that is in the world, and he goes through three things. First of all, I'm going to give you what I remember from the King James, but I'm going to modify slightly. The lust of the flesh. Um, now, lust there just simply means desires. Um, and then the second one, in the King James, it says lust of the eyes. Um, but a better translation would probably be lust for the eyes. The things that are attractive to our eyes. And the third one is the pride of life. In the translation I have in front of me, the ISV, it says the first one is the desire for fleshly gratification, which is a good translation as well. Um, the second one, the desire for possessions. I think it's actually a slightly broader than that because it's not just possessions that can attract our eye, but I think that is a big one. And then thirdly, worldly arrogance. Um, although that can also be translated the pretension of possessions. Um, so there's two there that perhaps deal with possessions, but I tend to prefer that third one comes back to that pride of life idea. This is about fame and self-exaltation and, um, you know, attracting attention to oneself. It's not so much about possessions because that's already been dealt with with number two. So do you think it means also putting confidence in these possessions like putting them these material things before god 
I think that's absolutely covered in all of that. Yeah. Um, but some people are putting possessions in their, are putting, sorry, confidence in their possessions as an external object. Some people mm -hmm. put confidence in their possessions because they have confidence in themselves. Right. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the first one I would put as um, the lust for the eyes because you're, you're putting confidence in something external to yourself. Whereas if you're putting confidence in something that you own because it's yours, so that it's actually coming back to confidence in self, then that's the third one, pride of life. Now, that may not make much practical sense to people. I am going to give two very, very good examples of each of the three of these, and I'm going to contrast and compare the temptation of Eve and of Jesus in doing this. And I think this is highly instructive. We have a fantastic verse here that actually unpacks temptation completely for us and does away with all of its pretend and show and shows us what's really underneath temptation. Um, and we'll do this shortly, but I just want to finish this verse first. Go back to the beginning of verse 16. It says, For everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father. These don't come from God. I'm going to turn to James shortly and highlight this even more clearly before we get back to Eve and unpack the three temptations that Satan used on her and compare them to 1 John. We'll label them with what 1 John calls them. Um, so these, everything that is in the world is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? But something else I want to point out here, God created all things originally. But we're not talking about the perfect creation that God made. What we're talking about here is the corrupted creation. These are the things that the devil has twisted and dragged down to his level and that the world then uses to throw at us to attract our flesh. This is corrupt. This is not what God created. It's a corruption of what God created. And I want to turn now to James 1 so that we can highlight this point that temptation does not come from God. If you are tempted, it's not from God. So starting in James 1 verse 12, how blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, I've got to give a, a quick background to this. If you go back to the beginning of James, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various temptations or Trials, it's the same word. It can be translated as either temptations or trials because it's exactly the same thing. It's a trial if it draws you closer to Christ. If It's your response that determines whether it's a temptation or So Satan tempts you, you resist. So you've resisted the temptation. You didn't fall for their temptation, but you went through a trial. If you fall into the temptation, well, then you failed the test and you, you um, succumb to temptation. But how blessed is the man who endures temptation or trials when he has passed the test, who will receive the victor's crown of life that God has promised to those who keep on loving him. Verse 13, very important. When someone is tempted, when someone is tempted, he should not say, I am being tempted by God. No, 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 no. Because, here's the reason, God cannot be tempted by evil. God will never do this, nor does tempt anyone, never ever. 
will God tempt someone because God does not want you to fall? Oh, so how does these things happen then? God is sovereign. Well, God allows temptation. It doesn't come from him. Job's the perfect example of this. Satan comes up before God and says, what's going on? And well, God says to Satan, what's going on? He said, I've been wandering around. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says to him, oh, he loves you because you look after him. Look at all the blessing you've given him. If you took that away from him, he'd curse you. So God says, okay, you're on. And so we see that Satan lied there. Um, one other thing, Satan can't know the future. So he was being quite arrogant in making that pronouncement because he had no idea. But God did know. <laughs> and God knew it was a safe bet, so to speak. Verse 14, instead, each person is tempted by his own desire. So where does temptation come from? Well, temptation comes from outside, but you don't succumb to temptation unless you give in to it because of your flesh, your own desire, your lust. Being lured and trapped by it. Satan wants to deceive you just as he did with Eve. And he doesn't care whether you're deceived or whether you do it willingly, as Adam did. But he wants to trap you. He wants to trick you. He wants to to draw you in. When that desire or lust becomes pregnant or conceives in some translations, it gives birth to sin. Now, temptation is not sin. I'll make this point again. Temptation is not sin. You may have a thought flash into your mind. You may see something that it would be better if you didn't see from a holiness point of view. That is not sin. It is sin if you continue to think about it or if you take a second look or whatever your temptation may be. It is sin if you're an alcoholic, for example, and that's something you're struggling with. It is sin for you to drive down a street where you'll know that you're going to have a problem. You know there's a pub there. You know that it's a pub that you like. You know that you have friends there. Don't drive down that street. You're putting yourself in temptation's way. Don't add to your temptation. You're trying to cause yourself to sin. Some people go, I want to see if I'm strong enough. Well, no, you're not. You're not strong enough. Flee temptation, the scripture tells us. Be like Joseph. The temptation comes along and she tries to, to get him. She grabs his coat. He leaves the coat behind. His um, purity was far more important than his possessions and even more important than his reputation because he was. He was damaged by this. He was thrown into jail. He could have protected his position. So you could even go to Joseph as an example of these three. Lust of the flesh, that's what she tempted him with. Lust for the eyes and the pride of life. He didn't try to protect any of that. He maintained a holiness before God and he ran away and suffered for it, it would seem, in the short term. But long term, he got great blessing out of this and he gained favor with God, which is far more important than what we think is goodness, what we think is best for me. <laughs> so keep that in mind as we're looking at temptation. Look at it as what's best for God, what's best for his kingdom. And I'll, I'll highlight Matthew 6.33 early here. I wanted to finish there, but I think this is a good point to mention it. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's our theme, righteousness. That's the standard. That's where we want to go. That's what will keep us away from temptation. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, whether it's possessions, whether it's needs, whether it's wants, whether it's desires, whatever it is. God will bless you with those things as he sees fit to bless you with them. You won't lack for any need, um, that's for sure, and you'll probably even receive other blessings on top of the bare basic needs. But getting back to James 1.15, when your desire conceives or becomes pregnant, it gives birth to sin, and when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. Now, God doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want you to be tempted. And even in the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, Lord, keep us away from temptation. Don't lead us into temptation. We should be praying that all day, every day. Keep me away from temptation, Lord. But I can guarantee you something. Temptation will come because God knows what's best for you. Um, and temptation and trial will sometimes be allowed to occur for purposes that God knows, and we've seen some of those already in James. Um, if you continue on from where he says, count it all joy, he says, because the testing of your faith produces endurance in James 1.3, and there's numerous other reasons. It proves your faith um, to God, um, although he already knows, to yourself, but it also strengthens your faith. Um, we're also going to look at um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 later on. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. Now, what's the way of escape? Well, the way of escape is always Jesus Christ. It's always pressing into God. And so that's one of the other purposes of temptation or trials is to cause us to trust him more, to cause us to grab onto him. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, which could have tempted him to turn away from God. And he cried out, God, release me, take this away. And God said, no, you need, you need more grace. You need, to, you need to want to trust me more so that more grace can be poured out on you. And so I'm going to leave this thorn in the flesh there so that more grace can be provided to you uh, because and God doesn't say this directly, but I believe this is the teaching of Scripture, Paul would have trusted himself more if he didn't have that thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. And we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Lots of people speculate. But whatever your thorn in the flesh is, whatever your temptation is, whatever your weakness is, press into God, press into God, trust Him, cry out to Him for the grace to be able to bear it. Instead of doing what Eve did, in Genesis 3 and trusting herself. And let's turn there now and I'll throw over to Garth for him to tell us about the devil. Well, it's uh, not, I don't want it to sound like he's a personal friend of mine, but um, <laughs> just, the way you, just the way you put that, and I'm thinking, whoa, hang on. But um, okay, so we have our third enemy is the devil or Satan. Now, um, Diablos means prone to slander or slanderous um, but in Christian literature it often pertains to Satan or in, in from the Greek Satanus the adversary now there's one good description I've found and it's not the totality of, of, uh, of this adversary this Satanus but it's a good one um, and it says that Satan is the prince of the demons the author of evil persecuting good men 
estranging mankind from God and enticing them to sin, afflicting them with diseases by means of demons who take possession of their bodies at his bidding, and also the one who incites apostasy. So does that sound like a reasonable rundown to you, Graham? Oh, yeah. Um, and There'd I think there's, there's a massive amount that we could say about the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, and Scripture doesn't tell us up front. It hints at it. Uh, like, I, I think the point is Scripture does not want to make the devil the focus. And I think far too many people elevate the devil above, oh, the devil's attacking me, or this thing, or that, oh, that must be the devil. Who knows what's going on behind the scenes? But I think people pay too much attention to the devil. Really, the devil's got no power. He's been defeated already on the cross. And the only power that he has over God's people particularly is as we allow him to. He walks around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but that's the best he's got. He's a roaring lion, but he's a defeated lion. And he has all the appearance, he has all the bluff and bluster, um, including with Eve. The only way that he was able to have any um, traction in her life and in her thinking was she allowed him to. If she had have responded to him, no, God said, don't eat, and walked away, <laughs> and not gone anywhere near the tree. She even said that God had said, you are not to eat from it, nor are you to touch it. Well, God hadn't actually said that, and we don't know whether Adam had added that, or whether she added that. I mean, it's a sensible thing to do. If you're going to not eat the tree, then why go near it? Why touch it? <laughs> that's, that's actually a, a sensible extra law, although some would argue perhaps it's legalistic, but (laughs) I mean, there was no benefit to touching the tree. I mean, she knew that, but she didn't, she didn't think that God really meant it. She didn't think that she could trust God. And so this is the problem that we have. The devil comes along and he'll try, this is the other thing we need to remember. The devil's not red with um, horns and a pitchfork. He's not ugly as he is often pictured, he's actually beautiful. He always has been. He makes beautiful music. Um, He's got beautiful gems as part of his um, being, as part of his body, if we're to believe um, Ezekiel is referring to him. And so the, the devil's not ugly, and neither is temptation. Temptation will never appear to be evil. Otherwise, it won't work. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's the whole point of temptation. It has to look beautiful. It has to look right. <laughs> and the devil looks right. And um, 2 Corinthians, I believe it is, talks about this. He comes as an angel of light because he is an angel of light. He was the covering cherub over the throne of God. And so that's, that is still who he is. He didn't get cursed and get you know transformed into an ugly beast. Um, it's only his nature that is ugly, not his appearance. Um, and his ministers, those who are his servants, um, whether human or not, will appear to be beautiful. They will appear to be ministers of light as well. So light not only has the idea of beauty, but it also has the idea of truth and even of righteousness. That's how Satan will appear to us. He will appear to be right. He will appear to be beautiful. He will appear to be good. <laughs> and that's how he traps us. Uh, scripture tells us, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The more that we know God's word, 
them. We know truth. The more that we will be able to discern between the counterfeit and the real. Bank tellers are not given counterfeits. And counterfeits generally will look almost exactly like the real. Right? So this is the point here, is that you need to know the real well enough that you know when the fake comes along, because it's not going to be obvious. It will be difficult. And so we have a hard job. How, how would we do that? How do we um, discern the, the real from the false? Uh, first of all, get into the word. Know the word um, so mm -hmm. that you know the real. Um, bank tellers are not given the counterfeit to be able to tell what is real and what is counterfeit. They are given the real. Right. And they are given the real. And they are given the real. And they have given the real. And they know the real so well. That as soon as the counterfeit comes along, they can tell the difference instantly. And they may not even be able to, to say exactly what it is that seems different, but they know the real so well, even subconsciously. And, and the same thing with Christians. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And that's not maybe I won't sin. In a modern translation, I imagine that would, I don't have this verse memorized that way, but uh, Psalm 119.11, if you want to look it up, your word, O Lord, have I hid in my heart. And one of the ways to do that is to memorize it. One of the ways to do that is to read it. One of the ways to do that is to listen to it, listen to sermons that are based on God's word, such as John MacArthur and, and, and many other great preachers. Spurgeon, although, you know, the language can be a little... Um, difficult for some, but but get into God's Word. Have it on tape. Buy CDs of God's Word being spoken by people so that you can listen to it as you go here and there. Get get sermons of people who care what God's Word has to say and listen to them. Maybe also a decent study Bible or other aids Absolutely. like that, which, I mean, even on the internet, there's a lot of free aids to help you study the Word. But um, it's funny you mentioned about the... Um, the counterfeit notes. I was watching this uh, show on TV the other night and um, the police were arresting this woman for passing counterfeit notes and it was at a um, uh, a well-known family restaurant with the golden arches out the front. <laughs> and and they went and spoke to the, uh, the manager who had the counterfeit $50 Australian $50 note and the police asked him, they said... Um, how did you work out that it was uh, counterfeit? And he said, well, my teller knew there was something wrong with the note straight away because it felt and looked different. Um, and it's just what you said. It, they, they couldn't put their finger on it directly straight away, but it just looked and felt different. And when, then when they examined it, um, there are a number of um, devices built into our notes to deter counterfeiters. And they examined it and they found, you know, a number of things wrong with it. But... It, as far as I can remember, it was what you said. The um, the person had said it looked and felt as if there was something wrong with it, and then they examined it and found out, you know, in detail. So uh, it, it rings true. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, and it's it's experience. Um, it's very easy to tempt someone who hasn't been saved very long because they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the experience. But I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 10.13 again. God will only allow you to be attempted by what you're able to resist. Um, 
and, and I think that's a very important point. The more mature we become in Christ, the more difficult the temptations that we face. And don't think that temptation, that it'll get easier. It doesn't get easier. You get a temptation commensurate with your maturity. And um, I've heard it many times. Um, mature Christians who may have been saved for 60 years, such as, you know, an 80-year-old man will say, don't think that um, the lust that pops up in my head about women is any less now that I'm 80. Um, it's just as great as it ever was. It's just as difficult to resist um, because the temptation rises with our maturity. Um, and, you know, we don't get tempted with what a, a one-day-old Christian will get tempted with as, um, you know, decades-old Christians. Well, that, that's right. We, we, we had some friends here yesterday and we were discussing um, these sort of topics and they told me that um, a relative of theirs, uh, he was also 80 years old and um, his son, you know, he was on his deathbed, so to speak, and um, he said to his son, and he was a believer, and um, he said to his son um, just before he died, he said, you know, the devil never, ever gives up. He's never given up on me since I've become a believer, and he hasn't given up on me now. And then uh, it was within, I think they said within a couple of days of his death, um, he said, because he knew he was dying, he said, look, I, I, you know, I know I'm going, but I can tell you now that I have this a wonderful release from uh from temptation and sin even though that he was 80 years old he said uh because i know where i'm going and he said bear in mind what what i'm telling you you know he's giving his son advice the devil never ever gives up on you and he didn't give up on me until i'm just about to go and then he died happily in his sleep um two days later so um and i, I was only told that anecdote yesterday so that also goes along with exactly what you just said So in Genesis 3, the devil is tempting Eve. He's trying to take her off the track. And he does a number of subtle little things. Um, but I want to focus on verse 6. Well, first of all, in verse 5, even God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, notice the three temptations that her flesh responds to in verse 6. The devil doesn't say these outright, but this is how the world appeals to our flesh, as we've already seen from 1 John chapter 2. When the woman saw that the tree produced good food, right? So this is something that's appealing to the flesh. This is good food. That's one of our fleshly desires. It's not wrong in and of itself. Here, it's tempting her to sin. It was attractive in appearance. It looked good which is, once again, not necessarily wrong. But that's one of the things that the world and the devil will use to appeal to our flesh to take us into sin. The lust of the flesh we've already seen, this is the lust for the eyes or the lust of the eyes, and was desirable for making one wise. There's the pride of life. So we see these three lusts, that the world uses, the three temptations or the three categories of temptation the world uses mentioned in 1 John chapter 2 are specifically delineated here in Genesis 3, 6. The tree produced good food, which is lust of the flesh. 
was attractive in appearance, lust for the eyes, and was desirable for making one wise. Once again, wisdom is not necessarily wrong, but the wisdom that she was being offered was wisdom that turned her away from God. Wisdom of good and evil. She already knew good. So what was being added? A knowledge of evil. She was having added to her um, life experiences evil. She was having death and sin added. What did she gain? Nothing. Well, that's actually taking away from what she already had. It's taking away goodness. It's taking away life from her. And that is what temptation to sin will always actually be offering you when you peel back the glittery wrapper. My father frequently tells a story of when he was a child, he was offered a Christmas present and he got this great toy. But as a young child, he was actually far more fascinated in this beautiful wrapping paper. And his, his father laughingly suggested that maybe he should have just bought him a roll of wrapping paper. Well, oftentimes we as human beings spiritually can act in exactly the same way. But it's even worse than that. There's not even a good gift within this temptation. It's actually ruinous, corruption, death, destruction, mayhem. It's Pandora's box. You open the box and the demons fly out and you bring destruction into your world. Now, let's contrast this with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So we turn now to Matthew chapter 4, I believe. I'm trying to get there quickly before. <laughs> yes, Matthew chapter 4 is just one of the accounts of it, um, and it will suffice. It is also recorded, I believe, in at least... Mark and possibly Luke. I don't know if John does. So the tempter came in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, and said, Since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, in the verse before, he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights hungry. That's a desire of the flesh, not wrong in itself. He was hungry. But the tempter comes to him and says, since you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. You can do this. You're hungry. Just do it. Just use your power for your own benefit. As the devil does. But that's not Jesus' purpose here on earth. He came and he emptied himself. And John over and over again tells us that he would only do what the father. He wasn't going to follow the tempter here. His response is, but it is written, one must not live on bread alone, but on every word coming out of the mouth of God. Life does not consist of the physical and our physical needs, including hunger or the desire for sexual gratification, for example. See what the devil is doing here. It wasn't wrong that Jesus was hungry. It wasn't wrong that he have his hunger sated, that he eat something and stop being hungry. But it would have been wrong for him to misuse his power for himself, especially at the urging of the devil. Lust of the flesh. Number two, the devil then took him to, a holy, to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He told Jesus, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down because it is written, God will put his angels in charge of you 
and with their hands they will hold you up so that you will never hit your foot against a rock. The devil actually quotes scripture here. This is from Psalms. And he doesn't exactly misquote it. There is a little bit that he leaves out, but it doesn't make that big a difference as far as I can tell. It's more that he's misused it. That's not the purpose of that. The purpose of that verse is saying, do what is right. God will care for you. That doesn't mean that you won't get hurt. <laughs> Even though it says, with their hands they will hold you up so that you'll never hit your foot against a rock. We shouldn't be taking that uh, as a physical, literal promise that we will never come to any physical harm. <laughs> I mean, for crying out loud, Paul obeyed God and was stoned to death. So we can't take this as being a literal, physical promise of no harm. But Jesus responds with, it is also written, you must not tempt the Lord your God. Now, I'm still undecided as exactly what sort of temptation this is. Is this the lust of the eyes or is it the pride of life? I'm unsure. Let's keep going. Once more, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world along with their splendor. So that sounds a bit like lust for the eyes, but let's keep going. He, t he told Jesus, I will give you all these things if you will bow down and worship me. Well, that sounds a little bit like pride of life as well, doesn't it? So, once again, I'm unsighted. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, because it is written, you must worship the Lord God and serve only him. Now, notice that every single time Jesus responds with scripture. How do we resist temptation? No scripture. Not only have it memorized, but understand it, study it. Know what applies in each situation. Have the sword of the spirit. Now, Remember, in Ephesians 6, that sword of the spirit that it talks about there is not their massive two-handed big sword. It's the little dagger that they would carry for close combat. It's the short sword. That's very important because we can't throw the whole of Scripture against the devil. And the word for word of God is not the word logos, which means the whole of Scripture. It's the word rhema which means the appropriate bit for that particular situation. And that's what Jesus does here three times. He uses the appropriate portion of God's word, part of a verse, to throw back at temptation, to throw back at the devil. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, James 4, 7 tells us. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is in the context of James 4, 6, saying God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus here is being humble. Jesus could have stood up with his own power and resisted the devil, but he didn't. He used the power of the Father, the word of the Father. He relied upon the strength of the Father for this. And Jesus is setting us an exact example of how we should operate, not rely upon our own power. We have none. Jesus had it, but he didn't rely upon himself. He relied upon the Father. We need to rely upon the Father and the word of the Father in resisting the devil. Now notice, even though it's not completely clear to me, the devil does use those same three temptations to attack Jesus Christ. He uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes or for the eyes, and the pride of life. And Jesus resists. 
where Eve gave in. And so this is a very, very telling point. If we are to call ourselves Christians and to be followers of Jesus Christ, we must follow his example in this aspect here in resisting temptation, in knowing that that's the only weapon the devil has, the lust of the flesh, the lust for the eyes, and the pride of life. That's all he's got. If you can resist those three, if you know scripture that resists those three, and they can come in various ways, as we saw in this scripture, lust for the flesh, there's all sorts of aspects. There's hunger, as it was for Jesus and for Eve, but there's also lust for sexual gratification. There's lust for other fleshly desires as well. Know what they are. Know how to resist them. Know what scripture says about them. Know about lust for the eyes. Know what looks good. Know what your weaknesses are. Put scripture in their place. And as Galatians Galatians 5.16 says, Graham, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And, and that's another place that we could turn to. I don't think we have time, but it contrasts towards the end of Galatians 15 from about where you're talking about towards the end of the passage. It talks about the works of the flesh and it lists and enumerates them and contrasts them with the fruit, singular, works, plural, fruit of the Spirit, singular. It's one fruit, even though it lists, I believe, seven <laughs> from memory or nine. I can't remember now. But they're one fruit. So we've been given a fantastic example by Jesus Christ about how to engage our enemy in this warfare that we're in. And I want to turn now to another scripture, 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, talks a bit more about our warfare against the world. In verse 3, it says, Of course, we are living in the world, but we do not wage war in a world-like way. For the weapons of our warfare are not those of the world. We should not borrow from the world they operate. Right? Even though a lot of the things that the world uses, like things that look nice, things that satisfy the flesh, right, they're not necessarily wrong in and of themselves. And we could use those things because they're neutral. But we shouldn't borrow from the world. We shouldn't borrow our thinking from the world, from the advertising of the world, from the commercialism of the world, from anything that comes from the world, the psychology of the world. All of those things are flawed. They contain within them the yeast of corruption, even though in and of themselves they may not necessarily be wrong at the time. But we should be wanting to seek that which is pure. You don't need to borrow from the world. We've got far better weapons. We've got far better ideas. We've got far better wisdom than anything they can offer us. We've got God. We've got his wisdom. Instead, they have the power of God to demolish fortresses. We tear down arguments and every proud obstacle that is raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive. This is where temptation is waged in our thought life. It starts in the mind before it becomes an action, before it turns to sin. We need to make sure that we guard our hearts with all diligence 
for out of it are the issues of life. Our life consists of the battle that's already been waged in our heart. And if we're not engaged in this warfare, if we're not tearing down imaginations, some translations make it, arguments, all these obstacles that the world and our internal traitor, the flesh and the devil, they're trying to stop us. They're trying to lead us astray. We need to get back to God's word. We need to strengthen ourselves in his truths, taking every thought captive in order to obey Christ. And continuing into verse 6, once your obedience is complete, we will be ready to reprimand every type of disobedience. Firstly, in ourselves. That's where it must start. Don't be seeking to fix everybody else until you're sorted. And then you go to them in humility and graciousness and, and mercy and love and gentleness to help others. And this is what he's talking about in Corinthians. He's talking to a very distracted and, and, and very um, dysfunctional church, particularly in 1 Corinthians, but there's still repairs going on in 2 Corinthians. And that's what he's saying here. Don't give up on this fight. Continue the battle. Take it to the next level. We've started with the very basic stuff in 1 Corinthians, the stuff that it's astounding that you would even have to mention this to Christians or to tell a church that you shouldn't be sleeping with your, your father's wife as one guy was and numerous other things that the rich were only looking after themselves and, and they were having gluttonous feasts while the poor were getting nothing at a church meeting. It's like, that's astounding to us. Well, the church has moved on from that. They've dealt with that. He's taking them to a higher level. And a level that hopefully most Christians are ready for. To be living a life where Christ is our focus. Where Christ is the center. Where truth is where we are engaged. Well, Graham, I know we're coming to the end of our presentation here, but um, earlier on you mentioned that you might like to finish on Romans 12, uh, verses 1 to 2. So, um, Sure, I'll just read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the good, well-pleasing and perfect will of God. And what I want to highlight here in relation to this issue of temptation is and do not be conformed to this world. That's what the devil wants to tempt us to do. That's what our flesh is um, swayed towards. But he says be transformed so that we're like Christ. We're transformed from earthly things to spiritual things by the renewing of your mind. Our mind is corrupt. We're born with a thinking that aligns with the world. We're born with a thinking that is sinful and is opposed to God, and that needs to be changed. How does that occur? By Scripture. We go to Scripture. We allow the Holy Spirit to speak with us, speak to us, and transform us. 
So be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that when the temptation comes along, our response is scriptural. Our response is godly to the temptation that we have. And that's the point that I think we need to get out of Romans 12, 1 and 2. So I think we've done a fairly thorough job here in covering this issue of temptation, what it is, how we are to respond to it, um, and the resources that God provides, including himself above all other things, of how we can overcome temptation so that it does not drag us down. But in fact, temptation can be that stepping stone to becoming more Christ-like and responding with Christ's mind, Christ's character, instead of the character of Adam and Eve. All righty. Well, I do think you've been very thorough in the presentation, Graham, and uh, I just want to thank you very much for coming on to the show again. So uh, thanks for your time, mate, and uh, bye-bye now. And thank you, Garth. As always, it's a pleasure. God bless. Bye-bye, mate. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com. 